Well, how, let me ask you this. Have you ever considered, like really stopped and uh, how, if you're a believer, how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of what he's done, of his death, burial, and resurrection, that good news, you know, how it came to you. Like, have you ever like really thought like, man, how I heard the gospel, like how the gospel came to me. For probably a lot of you, it was maybe through uh, your parents or a close relative who shared the, the gospel story with you. Or maybe it was a coworker, or it was attending a church service, maybe when you were younger or something. When, I mean, but here's what I want to look at. Not just even that moment where, or the, the people and the circumstances surrounding that, uh, that knowledge and that understanding of the gospel, and then hopefully the belief in the gospel and your faith in the gospel. But I want you to think even broader, like what circumstances led to each of us even gathering here today to look at God's word and to study it. You know, what I mean by that is, have you thought and considered that you know, over 2,000 years ago, you know, as some of us guys are reading through the book of Acts, you see the birth of the church and you see how it goes from literally from 11 men, because Judas has just hanged himself, and then there's some other followers, other women and different ones, maybe about 400 or so followers of Jesus, to go from that to 2,000 years later here in Buford, Georgia. We're meeting in a home talking about Scripture and talking about the gospel. Uh, yesterday, even in Acts, and you think of Acts, there's a story where, where Peter uh, they're they're preaching the gospel, and then they're like, I mean, the, the leaders of the of the Jew church, the Jewish church, uh, the the Sanhedrin, they pull him in. They're like, hey, we need to arrest these guys. We need to stop this. And they made a decision, and they said, you know what? Are we gonna you know, like let's just let's just give them a stern talking and a stern warning, and we'll we'll beat them up a little bit, and then that'll stop them. And so, but they were nervous because they're like, if this is God, it'll last, and if it's not of God, it's not gonna last. Think about this. We're sitting in a room. I mean, this, this, when you really stop and think, 2,000 years later, thousands upon thousands of miles away from Jerusalem where these, all these circumstances things happen, we're gathering together to look at God's Word. Like, it is really, really remarkable to stop and think all that God has done and accomplished to take just this kind of like a little seed, this seed of the gospel, Jesus invading the planet, and then all of a sudden it turns into a movement of this called the way, as you read it in the, in the book of Acts, this way, followers of Jesus, to where we're meeting in a home. We got up this morning, some of you walked downstairs, others of you drove here and showed up to, to look at God's word, to sing songs about the gospel, to sing about Christ. I mean, I, I hope we never lose that wonder and amazement I mean, how I grew up in the home that I grew up in. Why, why the home I grew up in? I mean, some of us were like, man, I didn't like my home, and it wasn't a good experience. But God yet used those circumstances to draw you to himself anyways. And I think it is remarkable. But here's one thing I think is remarkable is this, is that many times the gospel spreads when you and I would think it couldn't. Like, the gospel oftentimes spreads when we wouldn't think it would. When it seems like it shouldn't spread, it does I mean, have you, I mean, think about it. I mean, think about the gospel spread in China, uh, in Iraq, in Iran, Korea, even in Afghanistan, as we've seen over this past year and the persecution that's happening throughout the world. But yet in the places 
persecution, you often see extraordinary growth in the, in the gospel spreading like wildfire in those places. Why is that? And I think it's often we forget Romans 1.16, the power isn't in me and you, or even in Paul, the disciples, any of these people, the power is in what? The power is, the, the power is what? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I mean, think about this. I, I, I mean, when I came across this, it's really fascinating. It's three years before I was born. So in 1979, uh, Iran established uh, the Islamic regime. In 1979. And so over the next 20 years, Christians faced persecution and all missionaries were kicked out. I mean, they, you're not allowed to be here. So they would kick out all the missionaries and all the believers and they would murder and kill uh, Christian pastors and, and Christians that they could find. And so Bibles in Persian were banned uh, and several pastors were executed. Many thought the Iranian church, which was estimated at about 500 people in 1979, Today and beyond, it's most estimated as over a million people are followers of Jesus. To think, I mean, it just in most unlikely places where you would think, man, there's no way. I mean, they've, they've, they've banned it. They've kicked them out. They've persecuted them. There's hardly anyone there. But yet God used even a place like Iran to spread his gospel. And here's the reality. So was the case on the island of Crete. Uh, the Crete, as you, if you open your Bibles to Titus, you might have already done that. But Titus, it's right before you get to Hebrews, First and Second Timothy. It's First and Second Timothy and Titus are considered pastoral epistles, written by Paul. There's no real question to who uh, wrote them. He pens his name to it as well in the opening. We're going to look at this opening here in just a few minutes. But this was the case uh, when it comes to Crete. Crete was a most unlikely place to see the gospel spreading and churches being established. Uh, and over the next several weeks, we're just going to look at this uh, really small book. It's three chapters, about like 46-ish verses. Um, and uh, what we're going to see is this gospel spread like wildfire on a place like Crete, which didn't seem like a place that it should really uh, be uh, growing and the gospel should be spreading. Because listen what Acts chapter 2 uh, uh, or even in Acts chapter 2, we see that how it was established first was uh, we know that some believers, Paul traveled at some point to Crete. Um, he would have established a church there. He didn't stay very long. Uh, and in Acts 2.11, we know at Pentecost that there were people when there's a list of all the different people hearing the gospel and hearing Peter's message in their own native language, in their own ears. As Peter's speaking one language, they're hearing in all different languages. And as that's happening, one of those groups of people are Cretans. They're these people from Crete. Uh, we, we know that on his way to Rome, that's when uh, he would have uh, began a ministry there. So now he's wanting to put Titus there to oversee the mission there. It's kind of like a successor to his establishing and planted this church there. There's some more churches in the community, and now um, uh, he's going to leave Titus. But Titus had a tough, it's not going to be an easy crowd to reach. Because listen to what Titus 1.12 says. Uh, one of their own prophets, listen to this, one, verse 1.12. One of the prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, think about that. I mean, I guess, can we even believe if it's true or not? Or if they're all liars, I guess. Maybe this guy's a liar too. Who knows? But, but when you really think about it, when you think about this group of people, when you think of Crete and you're like, man, these people, they overeat, they're lazy, um, uh, they're liars. I mean, we think, like, listen, we're not really too far from Crete when you really think about America, when we think of the culture that we live in. 
It's not too far off. And here, it's a difficult culture. It's a difficult place to plant a church and to see churches thriving. And so here, that's the task that Titus is given. And so Titus is given this task. It's not a very flattering one. It's not an easy um, place to plant a church and to establish these churches and help grow them. But it was necessary because here's what we're going to see as we look at the book of Titus. Titus is very practical. It's very simple. It's not hard to understand. But if these churches are going to endure in a culture like Crete, they needed certain things in place. They needed order. And so if you look at even at verse 5, one chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. They needed oversight. They needed help. They needed leadership. They needed qualified men to lead and help establish this church because there were going to be challenges. We're going to see later as we look in this book, we're going to see that the... Um, they were false teachers. So there was the importance of needing to know what is the truth. And then they needed leaders to help establish that and to maintain the truth and to guard and protect it and to shepherd people. And so these were all important things. But as we look, and all we're going to look at today is the first four verses. As we look at these first four verses, all it is is a greeting. It's a longer greeting, especially. It's one of the longer ones besides Romans um, uh, for such a small book as well. But most likely Paul's writing, and usually in his writing, he's going to agree. He's going to say who he is. He's going to say a little bit about him, his authority as an apostle. Uh, and we'd say, why is he apostle? Who are apostles? Are there apostles today? Are there not today? Well, I would say, no, they're not today. Apostles were very specific. They were people who had been with and seen the risen Lord. And so for, for Paul, he was one who's kind of like an unlikely apostle because he didn't see the Lord. He wasn't around and he wasn't there while he was ministering. Um, but then what happened on his road to Damascus? The Lord, the risen Lord, appears to him and, 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 and calls him out. And he calls him out for a specific purpose. And these apostles were given special gifts confirming the message. So when Peter would go into a village, and if you're reading in Acts and you see, man, like his shadows going by and people are getting healed in the streets, you're going, what about these faith healers today? Again, this was all a work at the very beginning stages of the church confirming the message and the authority that they had. And so now what we have is the New Testament. Most of the New Testament, or all of the New Testament is from these apostles, from uh, a lot from Paul, naturally. And then you have uh, Luke's the only uh, one who was an eyewitness. Of, he's sharing the eyewitnesses of what the apostles had seen and heard. Um, and so as we look at this passage, what I want us to see this morning, and just, to, and just really briefly, is this. We're going to see the commitments that Paul had. He was a very committed individual. Um, he had, uh, and, and we're going to see this just in these, this little greeting, this opening this morning. But I want us to look and learn from what Paul was committed to and how that commitment should be a mark of every good, faithful church. And if we want to be a church that lasts, we need to have these similar commitments. So four commitments to faithful ministry. So let's read this little greeting here from Titus chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. 
to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I'm pretty sure if I were in an English class and my English teacher, she would not have appreciated a long sentence like that. Uh, Paul is known for some really long sentences, but he packs them. It's like he packs them full of so much content. And in really this, 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 this sentence uh, that we're going to look at in this opening greeting, there's really some really th- important things in these commitments that we see that Paul was committed to that we need to apply to ourselves. So first one is this. The first commitment to faithful ministry is this. is We need to be committed to being a servant of God. To being a servant. Um, look what he says. I mean, we see this as when we look at Paul and his readings throughout the New Testament and writing the letters. Only refers to himself as a bondservant, a slave. Here, in almost every other circumstance, he refers himself as a slave to Christ Jesus, or the Messiah, like the promised one, the, the, the holy one. Talks about Jesus, the Son of God. Here, specifically, he focuses on God. Uh, again, speaking to who Jesus is, that he is fully God. He says, Paul, a servant of God. And then he tells us he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so think about this. Paul, if we, if we go back a little bit, go back to Philippians. You don't have to turn there, but go back in your minds to Philippians. In Philippians, he gives this description of who he is. Of his, he gives like a credentials. It's like a resume. And his resume is full of extraordinary things. I mean, educated, born a Jew, born in the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he's like a Jew of Jews, circumcised, uh, and all of these things. And had unbelievable knowledge of the law. And he, he referred to himself as keeping the law. Uh, I mean, kept it almost flawlessly. All of these things were attributes that you could say, man, Paul, you're, you're, that's impressive. It could lead to uh, pride or arrogance. But what actually did Paul say about all of those things? He says, I consider all those things as rubbish. He considers those things uh, as worthless. Why? Because he now had seen himself in light of Christ. Christ had revealed himself to him. And now he says, I come under his leadership. I don't lead my own life. I follow him. You see, to follow, it has to, you have to let go of something to follow, right? You have to let go of control. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure most of us, uh, in, in some ways or another, like to control things. You know, some of you are like, yes, my wife controls me all the time. And you're like, no, that's not how it should be. You know, or, or you may be wondering like, man, my, I, I, feel, I feel like uh, I, I'm the one who needs to drive on this trip or I'm deciding what we're eating this week or I'm, I'm making the decision. And so it's easy how we want to control things. We want to control our kids. We want to, cont- we put our hands on things. But yet when it comes to following Christ, when we're going to follow, it's relinquishing control. And Paul says, you know what? I have chosen to be a servant, a slave to Christ. And, and listen, here's the thing. If we're going to be a committed follower of Jesus, we want to be a, a church that lasts, that we're talking about, it takes a servant's heart. It takes being a servant. You need to see yourself as a servant and act like a servant. You know, I mean, again, before Paul was Paul and he was Saul, I mean, he... he he had all these credentials, but yet when he met Christ, Christ changed him, completely changing him, and it led him to a total of complete submission to the Lord's will. He considered himself a slave to Christ. You know, when it look, how does that, what does that look like day to day? What does it look like daily to be a slave to Christ? You see, there's so many decisions we make every single day. There's, there's, 
there's a decision to what I'm going to do with my life. What I'm going to do today. What am I going to accomplish? What do I want to pursue? What am I going to spend my time on? Well, see, listen, what does a slave do? A slave has no rights. They have no, they have no, they have no freedom when we talk about a slave in our, in our world. Uh, a slave has no freedom. They're, they're completely in submission to what the master has on the plan. They might be like, man, I want to go to the, I want to go downtown or I want to go visit family. But the master says, no, you have this to do and that to do. You have all these things to do. Listen, and here's the, here's the wonderful thing about this is that Paul sees himself as a slave and he doesn't see it as a bad thing. He sees himself as a servant of God and he sees it as a, a good thing because he knows that God always has his best. But here's the problem. Oftentimes when we're living our own life, what, we're, what are we doing? We think, our, we think we know what our best interests are. We think we know what is best suited for this day or with my life or a career or a path of life. And Paul says, you know, I consider all of these things worthless. I'm a slave. I'm a servant of God. And this was a commitment of Paul's. Not only was it this, this first one, this commitment um, uh, uh, to being a, a servant of God, but also this, he was committed to reaching the lost. Committed to reaching the lost. Now, the way you're going to read this, you're going to be like, this is a little, a little uh, not, not, not stretching at all, but what you're going to see is it's, kinda, it's a little bit confusing because you're not going to see necessarily the lost in this passage. You're actually going to see believers. But look what he says. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice this. So he is a servant of God. I, I have willingly submitted my life to him and his lordship. Apostle, I'm a sent one for his uh, mission. And notice this, what is the mission? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The problem is it's hard to stop. You're like, you're like the sentence just keeps going. So you're like, you're going, I'm going to keep reading. Uh, but, but just looking even at that first part there, what does he say? He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth you know here's the here's the reality we must share the gospel with all people but paul's like like my message is for god's it's for christians it's for god's chosen ones his predestined ones his message is for those people but think of it this way think of it this way um uh when when you share the gospel do you know who is going to be a follower of christ or not of course not. We don't know. We don't know who's going to respond to the gospel. You see, Paul, Paul doesn't, like, I think there's oftentimes there's this people who want to look at a dichotomy of uh, free will of man and uh, the, the sovereignty of God. And there is this very much difficulty, but I think sometimes we see it as a dichotomy. Paul never sees it that way. He didn't hear it he's speaking on election and he's speaking about God's elect, God's chosen ones. He's also saying, listen to what he says. He's like, this is why I preach. This is why I go. This is why I'm sent for the sake of their faith. Again, faith, looking at that human responsibility of responding to faith, but yet it's God's chosen ones. Uh, I like uh, Tim Chester. Tim Chester is um, an English professor, author. I've read, I've read several of his books and um, a pastor as well. And uh, he shared... Uh, an illustration of, of experience that he had. He said, you know, he, he likes to plant things and he had these seeds and he found them in his shed and he'd forgotten about them. And he pulled out these seeds and they were, he's like, he's like, I had no idea that there was an expiration date on seeds, but sure enough, it was saying it was expired. And he's like, sure enough, they looked pretty dead. But he's like, but I didn't know. How was I going to find out if they were dead or not? I'm going to go plant them. 
So he planted them, he watered them, he took, tried to take care of them, and he's like, sure enough, some of those what looked dead uh, came forth. Some didn't and some did. And what his point in telling that story was, was basically saying this is the same thing. We don't know who God is calling to himself, but what are we to do? We're to do what Paul does here. He's committed to reaching the lost. We share the good news to everyone. That's the parable of the soils, the, the parable that Jesus shares. We're just to be the faithful messenger, spreading the, the seed. We, we, we scatter the seed. Sometimes, yeah, it's going to fall on hard hearts. It's going to fall on people who are going to be opposed to the gospel. Other times it's going to fall on people who are going to be like, yeah, I like that. I, I, I want to follow Jesus. And then the, the care of the world, the things of this world, grab a hold of their heart and it chokes out that seed and they never, they never endure. We know that only one seed responds to the gospel, and that's the, the heart that has been, to- that has been uh, tilled. It's the fertile soil that receives the gospel, the good news. But how is that done? That's done through the Holy Spirit and His power. He draws people to Himself. What are we to do? We're to be faithful. But here's the commitment, though. The commitment is to reach the lost. The commitment is to reach the lost. This mystery of salvation, really, and election even, it is. It seems, it's a mystery. We're never going to, I mean, there are unbelie- I mean, unbelievably wise and godly men who are on totally different <laughs> spectrums of their view on, uh, on election and free will. What, what do we do know? We know what Scripture teaches, and we see this from Paul. Paul says, listen, dead hearts, dead people, even Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, remember as Ezekiel preaches to the valley of dry bones, what does he do? He preaches, he's speaking, and this is a picture of Israel and how Israel was dead. They were worthless. They were nobody. And so here's this, this valley of dry bones and he's preaching the good news. He's, he's preaching and what happens? He sees and eventually uh, some flesh starts to get on those bones, but they were still dead. They still looked dead until what? Until the breath was breathed into their lungs. And that breath is that same word in the of, of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit has breathed life into them, all of a sudden now, those people who were dead now are alive. How does a dead person get up? They don't get up themselves. They cannot get up themselves. They can't. It's going to take someone else. Here, that's the picture that we see in Ephesians 2 of God raising up, taking people who are dead in their trespasses and making them alive in Christ. And see, our heart, this shouldn't lead us, even a view of election shouldn't lead us to, um, to, to not live on mission. You know, to, well, if God knows who's going to be saved, then what's the point? Do we see that's what Paul's doing? Paul's life is marked on mission. He's preaching the gospel, yes, to the elect, those people who are going to respond to the gospel are going to believe it, but he's just casting it out. It's for all people. He goes, right, when he would go into a town, what do you do? to plant a church you'd go to the he'd preach the gospel to the jews there and then he would start spreading out and furthermore and all of a sudden there's a church would form and now there would be need need for elders and qualified leaders and he would stay for a while and that leads us really to our next commitment so not only do we have to have a commitment to reach the lost this is an important one a church really isn't a church unless it has a passion for the lost but that passion is driven from a knowledge of christ and who he is um, but not only do we have a committed, need to be committed to reaching the lost, the, the third one is this, is committed to training toward godliness. Committed to training toward godliness. We see this was a commitment to Paul. It's Paul, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. 
which accords with godliness. Notice that. He, 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 it's not just, I'm carrying lost and seeing con- converts, right? I'm carrying lost. I want to come to know and believe and put their faith and trust in Christ. No, it's more than that. It's more than that. It's, it's a growth. It's a sanctifying work. It's a commitment to training toward godliness. You know, in many of, of Paul's letters, we see him talking about training. Uh, he describes it often about running a race, um, a person lifting weights and, and growing and stretching and, and becoming more like Christ. We see it often. In Philippians 1, uh, 25, uh, Paul said this, Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I mean, his desire was to see people grow in godliness, to become more like him. But that's really, that's, that's my question. Like, are we growing? And how does someone grow? How does someone become more like Christ? How do we, how do we get this, get this growth? Where does this growth come from? Notice what he says. He says, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, which brings, which provides, which is a byproduct of the knowledge of the truth. The truth of God's word should lead us to live godly lives. This was the book of Paul. He was committed to training believers. Later in this letter that we're going to look at, <clears throat> false teachers are going to show up, and that's why he's addressing this letter to Titus, because these false teachers, they're not teaching the truth. And what does not teaching the truth lead to? What does error lead to? Error leads to bad behaviors. If you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you see they erred from truth. And what does it lead to? It leads to bad behaviors. And so here, if we want to grow in knowledge of Christ, if we want to become and grow in godliness, it comes from the truth of God's word. It really does amaze me uh, to think that so many Christians or people who call themselves Christians <clears throat> have very little knowledge of Scripture. They don't, they don't commit to reading it and to studying it. Uh, it really is remarkable. And, and <clears throat> I say this because I've been around, I've been, I mean, I know me and I know a lot of people as a pastor for 13 or 14 years of getting to talk to people, whether they're students or adults, dads, moms, across the spectrum, uh, elderly to, to young kids, the lack of spending time in God's word. And it's like, how do we think we'll grow? How do we think we'll live a godly life if we don't study God's word, if we don't look at his word, if we don't rely on his word? Because truth is what he's saying here. This truth leads to godliness, this knowledge of the truth. As we get to know God, we become more, we, it should be a byproduct that you become more godly. And it's a work that the, the Bible, uh, Jesus said this way in the, in the prayer in John 17. He said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Because God's word has a sanctifying effect. It has a cleansing effect. It has a purifying effect. And so this is why I will often say to all of you, and you'll hear me say this over the years if you're with us that long, that and as, as, until, until really my dying breath is going to be preach the gospel to yourself. Continually preach God's gospel into your heart. Let God's word change you. Let the knowledge of the gospel, the wonder, the 
That's why I, I love to sing worship songs together because these worship songs should stir our hearts again and anew and afresh to what the wonder of what God has done in and through us. And so listen, this has to be a commitment. It's a commitment as a church, but it should be a commitment uh, for each of us, committed um, to growing um, in godliness and training towards godliness. And the final one we'll see here in this little greeting uh, from Titus is a commitment to preaching God's word, a commitment to preaching God's word. Look at verse uh, continuing on. We'll just start from the beginning again. It's one long sentence. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through, notice this, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. You see, Paul was committed to proclaiming gospel proclamation, preaching, the word we use for preaching, this proclamation, exhortation, exhorting people towards this godliness, to knowledge of the truth, to, which, which brings a faith, which brings also this faith leads to more hope in eternal life. But here's this preaching. This preaching is proclaiming, really, uh, one, of my, one of the greatest preaching quotes this is, this is one that I'm, almost every pastor that I, at least most pastors I've ever talked to, uh, a lot have this sign on something in their, on the, in their, or some have it right on their. The greatest preaching quotes that I've ever heard was from Richard Baxter hundreds of years ago. But here's this quote from Richard Baxter. He said this, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. He, he, let, me, let me tell you that again. He preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man, dying men. You see, he saw that this was eternity was at stake. Do you notice what, what, what Paul was saying here? This idea of eternity. In verse 2, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, this has been promised from eternity past. It's been promised about an eternity future. And so he says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word, notice, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Notice, it's a command of God for preaching. You see, man, I think oftentimes what errs in a church is preaching. If the preaching veers to man-centered or just even just moralistic preaching. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, was a, I was a student pastor for years and probably the first four years of my preaching as a student pastor was very moralistic. Man, looking back on it, you're like, because you're thinking, oh, it's teenagers. They need to know. Don't, don't do these things. Don't, 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 don't. Like, you you got to avoid this. Got to avoid that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it was, it's easy to preach. It's easy to be like, hey, here's what scripture says. Don't do that. And you can preach moralistic. You can just take topics and, 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 and hit those things and tell, hey, don't do this, rather than pointing people to who God is, seeing Christ in Scripture. You see, gospel-centered preaching should be the only kind of preaching, preaching that doesn't lead to the gospel, that doesn't point to Christ. If it just makes man look good, then it's not preaching. Preaching should lead to where you have a greater view of Christ, where you left saying, man, Christ is awesome. 
uh, man, I, as it just came to my head, I read this just like a month ago, so I might mess it up because I didn't have it in my notes. I wasn't even thinking about it until just now. Uh, um, I read it, man, I think it was like two weeks ago. Um, Charles Spurgeon, super famous, obviously, called Preachers. Um, they were going to visit. Uh, there was this, this group of pastors and people that were going to go visit and see, like, man, like, there's this, I mean, amazing growth, revival. It's like, let's go, like, have a little conference and learn from Charles Spurgeon and learn from others. And there was these two guys going on at the same time uh, preaching in, in England here. And so I can't remember the other guy's name because I wasn't prepared to share this. Uh, but um, as, as these, these people go, they go and hear... Um, uh, the, the one guy first, they hear him, this one, this other guy who was in the area who was doing great things and they left and the, the comments they made as they left is like, man, man, he was really good. Like that was really, really good. I can't remember. I'm kind of paraphrasing. And so that night they went to listen, or it might be backwards, but they went to listen to Charles Spurgeon and they left and they said, man, isn't Christ wonderful? And see, that's a difference in preaching. Preaching isn't about, man, that was such a good sermon. No, it's more Christ is exalted. Christ is supreme. We lift up Christ. And so Paul, if you look at Paul's letters, he is lifting up Christ. As he goes from town to town, he's preaching Christ and him crucified and him resurrected to eternal life that you can have eternal life with him. You see, there's the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8. Jesus seen and how is eternity made known? It is through the preaching of God's word. But here's the thing. When we say preaching, yes, I'm talking somewhat in a formal sense, like this applies specifically to me as I preach God's word. But as we think about proclaiming God's word, here's what happens. It happens as you study God's word yourself, you can too proclaim it. You can proclaim that. So like, listen, you're going to lunch with someone and something and they, they bring up something. And you're like, man, I just was reading this last week or I was just reading a scripture how God was using this as an encouragement. And then all of a sudden you're able to communicate, not you, you communicate God. You, can, you point people to his word. And Paul's commitment was an important commitment. It was a commitment to preaching the word, but it came as a command all of these commitments, when you kind of put this one sentence together, is by the command of God, our Savior. Then he tells us who it's written to, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. You see, you see these, these were key commitments to Paul's ministry, but really should be of ours as well. You know, let me ask you, how committed are we to serving to being a servant of God, each day asking, God, what do you want me to do? Each decision, God, what is it that I should do? Are we committed to placing ourselves under his lordship? Are we committed to the lost? Are you paying attention to the people around you? Are you finding opportunities to share the hope of the gospel? Do we shy away from being bold because of fears? Listen, remember, Christ says, it's His elect. We share the message and they respond if they, show, they so should. We just are to be faithful. But oftentimes we're lacking in faith because we're fearful. We're scared. We're not very bold. You know, are we committed to growth and growth of, growth of others? Are we committed to, to growing towards godliness? Because as we look to the truth of God's word, it should transform our hearts and lead us to more godly lives. The healthy church, churches, that, that last are ones that grow 
in godliness? Are we committed? Are we committed to His Word? I want to challenge you. Spend more time in God's Word this year than you did last year. Now, if you only read five verses last year, you'll spend more than 10 verses this year. But point being, just spend a little bit of time in God's Word each and every day. And let the truth of God's Word transform your heart. And finally, are we committed to proclaiming the message of Christ? And this is definitely for me. My commitment is to teach Scripture. Now, my idea is but God's. I, w- I want, I mean, I, that is my hope. I know I fail often, but I want Christ to be exalted, to your view of Christ to be greater once you leave hearing what God's Word has to say about Him. See, this was Paul's commitment and should be our commitment. And if we want to be a church that lasts, we need to hold on to some of these commitments. We're going to see Titus is going to need to show up and bring some leadership and establish elders. Why? Because in these elders we're going to look at next week need to be high in character. They're not, they're not like these talented people. They're character qualities. It's their character is what matters. And, but these people are going to be needed because there's going to be plenty of false teaching, plenty of error that's out there. And who's going to correct it if there aren't faithful men who are leading and knowledge, and knowing, and growing themselves. You see, these are commitments because a church that isn't committed to these things won't last. It won't last. We see churches close all the time. All the times, why? I mean, we would say, oh, well, this, this, and this, you know, the area changed, you know, the, all these things. But what happened? Lost a desire for their first love, Christ. Lost a desire for Christ. That then led to a, less of a desire for the lost around them. And in all of that, they probably weren't growing. And maybe the preaching was happening or maybe it wasn't happening. But oftentimes you see these churches that close, these things that flounder or just stay stagnant. It's because they don't have these commitments and they're not committed to them. Paul had these commitments. And this is the second to last letter that Paul writes. And he's, he knows his time on earth is almost done. He's kind of... He's kind of like has a succession plan and he's given handing over the keys to Timothy and Titus and some of these others and saying, here, I need you to be faithful. Trust me. And here he's bringing his authority and saying who he is, that he's an apostle. And now here, go and do these things because it's necessary because these people are going to wander and a tough place to do ministry. So I hope the study of Titus will be a benefit to each of us and that will, again, gain a greater love for Christ uh, as we study it. So let me pray. And then we're going to sing one last song. Father, we love you. Uh, We just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of scripture. Thank you for the gift of Paul that you changed a man who was a murderer of Christians, who was against uh, the cause of Christ. And yet, in the wonder of the gospel, you came. and You revealed yourself to him and his heart was forever changed. The, The blinded eyes this kind of picture of the scales on his eyes when he was actually blinded. It's kind of removed. All of a sudden, it's like now he can see clearly Christ and Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. And so I pray that our hearts would be continuously softened by this gospel news, this good news. Help us to grow in these areas. Help us to be committed this year to spending more and more time in your word. May we be committed to the lost and to reaching the lost. May we be committed to being a servant, just giving of ourselves and submitting ourselves to you and what you have for us uh, this year. So help us in all these areas. Help us to become more like you and help us to be a light in this community. We pray for your blessing on each of these families over this coming year. We pray that we would Again, grow together in unity, but in wisdom and knowledge and godliness 
um, uh, and that we would be great followers of you that make an impact, just like we're seeing in these early days of the church in Acts, and as we see even here on Crete, God, I pray that you'll do these great things here in this area as well, and use us to be faithful to your message, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.